we are studying Esther. Uh, we've been, this is our third installment of our little hot drama miniseries. Because this is a pretty hot book, you know. Not what you normally hear in church. But it's in the Bible. Part of the reason why Martin Luther didn't want this book to be in the Bible. Because it's kind of, kind of, kind of like a hot drama miniseries. Today we're going to look at chapter 2. So if you would, open your Bible to chapter 2. We'll be in verse 19. But before we go there, I want to kind of preface it a little bit about a few things. The first question I want to ask is, how do we live in culture? That's the question I think this book forces us to ask ourselves. How does a religious minority um, live in a culture that's, for the most part, anti-Christ? And we live in that culture. We live in a place where 83% of the world, of America, has no church experience. Did you know that? 83%. That's the official Pew poll. 83% of Americans have no church experience. Can you believe that? It's true. So we live in a culture that's for the most part anti-Christ, and we have to answer this question as believers, how do we live in that culture? So before, before we study this, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about myself so that you'll know where this sermon's coming from, from me, that is. Um, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I left a job, um, I was a, uh, an associate pastor at a church, in order to plant a church because I want to reach those 83%. And so we called this church a very strange and weird name. It's Missio Dei. It's hard to spell, even harder to pronounce. Um, maybe I was foolish for naming our church Missio Dei, but I actually think it's a good idea because people ask me, what does that mean? What is, how do you say that word? It's like Chipotle. You know, I don't know how to say it. Um, and then I get to explain to them what it means. And the word Missio Dei is a Trinitarian theological term, which means, it's a theological term, it's big, and it's Trinitarian because it's about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? God is three in one. And the word missio dei literally means the mission of God, which means God's always on a mission. So God the Father is on a mission to reach people who are far from him. And in order to accomplish that mission, he sent his son as a missionary to go reach people who were far from him. And then as part of that mission, Jesus said, I'm going back home, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be with the church, to be a part of that mission. And then Jesus said, just as the Father sent me, so I now, now therefore, sendeth thou you. And so he's sending the church into the culture to make an impact. In fact, Jesus' last prayer, one of his last prayer was, Father, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but leave them in the world so that they may influence the world. Just protect them. So, I, so the concept of Missio Dei is that God is a missionary, and he is constantly sending and reaching out to people who are far from him, that he wants to reach that 83%. So what does it mean to be missional? This is the new buzzword. Have you heard the word missional before? If you go to a Christian bookstore, it's on every book. Missional churches, missional communities, missional activities. And let me unpack what the word missional means. It's simply put, it means being a missionary in your zip code. What does that mean? Well, if I were a missionary to India or to Pakistan, some, some hostile place towards the gospel, here's how I would do my missionary work. I would go into this country, maybe even before I get to the country, I would do a ton of research about their culture. I would learn what offends them, so I won't do that. And I'll learn what makes them laugh, so I'll say those things. And I'll learn how to be, kind of blend in with the culture. Not too much, of course, right? 
but I'll learn how to like dress the way they dress and talk the way they talk so that I can make friends and eventually influence them with the gospel. What I'm not going to do is go in there like the stereotypical, loud, obnoxious, obnoxious American, right? This is what the whole world thinks Americans are loud and obnoxious because we go traveling to Europe or whatever. We're like, well, I'll be there. Where are we going? How do you get here? And we're all just screaming. Why do Americans do this? You know, we just make a lot of noise. That's not how we're good. I'm not going to go to India and stand on the street corner and say, y'all going to hell in a handbasket unless you turn and burn, you know? That's not how we be missional. You, you, you live in the culture, you get a job perhaps, you make friends, and you don't lead with the gospel. You lead with your love and your relationship with them, and then eventually you earn the right to share the gospel with them. That's what it means to be missional. And ironically, evangelicalism, historically, we've been great at that overseas. We've taught our missionaries how to be missional in other cultures. But here, in our own culture, we've taught them the exact opposite. That is, separate yourself from the culture. We're in a culture war. And so we've treated culture as the enemy. And it's not. It's not. Jesus says it's not. So how do we live as Christians in our culture and not be hostile towards that culture and at the same time be able to influence that culture? This book is going to teach us that, I think. So let's look at it. Chapter 2, verse 19. We just finished a few things. Esther became queen. She won the first season of The Bachelor Persia, and now she's queen, and she has this wedding in verse 19, see, in verse 18, see it, the king gave her a great feast, Esther's feast, it's granted remission of taxes, this is a big day, big wedding day, verse 19, now when the virgins were gathered together a second time, what? This is interesting to me, what does that mean? The virgins are being gathered together a second time. Verse 18, there was a wedding. Verse 19, there's supposed to be a honeymoon, don't you think? I like honeymoons. But what we have is verse 18, there's a wedding. Verse 19, Xerxes is going to gather together some more virgins. This means season two of Bachelor of Persia. How would you like to be Esther? See, this is what I mentioned last week. We have to be careful with that word love because I don't think that he loves her. I think he just likes her. And now he's going to, he says, you know what, that, that, that game was fun. Let's play it again. Let's get some more virgins. So in the second, after, after gathering gathers together virgins a second time, it says this. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And Esther, verse 20, had not made known her kindred or her people. So no one knows she's a Jew, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, Two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king Xerxes. Okay, so at this time, Esther's now queen. Xerxes is still playing his games, and Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. What does that mean? It means that Mordecai's a politician. He's, he's an official. He sits at the city gate. This is what that word means in, in this ancient time period. When they sit at the gate, it means they're in politics. So Mordecai's a politician. He's an official. He's got other officials with him. And while he's there doing his official business, he overhears a conversation between two eunuchs. So here we are in church, and now I have to unpack what the word eunuch means. Good. Yeah, the kids are back there. What is a eunuch? A eunuch, by definition, is someone who's been castrated. And if you don't know what that means, just look it up on the Internet. <laughs> someone who's been castrated. 
Why have they been castrated? Because they are the king's men. And the king's men serve the king's women. And so see, Xerxes has thousands of women in his palace. He's got wives, he's got the queen, he's got wives, he's got concubine, and he's got an extra harem. Thousands of women. And what he does is he gets these young men to tend to them. And they feed them, and they give them their cosmetics, and he takes care of them, and he runs the schedule. And when Xerxes says, I want, you know, Betty, he gets Betty ready. And, and, and so what Xerxes does is he has to castrate those men because he doesn't want any of those men fooling around with his women. He doesn't want to run the risk of one of those girls falling in love with Big Thon, you know. <laughs> and then, because the king, it's so important for him to have lots of children. You know, in this time period, the more children you have, the more like God you are. You want to have this huge prodigy. And he's having all these children with all these women, and he has to know they're thoroughbred, right? These are my boys. My, and so one of them will be the next king. One historian, Herodias, said that Xerxes would literally draft 500 young men every year to be a eunuch. Hey, what's your name again? <laughs> what was that? Derek. Derek. How would you like to get that postcard in the mail? <laughs> Congratulations, you've been drafted as a eunuch in the temple. You run to mom, mom, I got a job. <laughs> What is it? I don't know. It says I'm a eunuch. <laughs> She's like, oh, son. <laughs> well, maybe, Derek, you might feel like these two guys as well. Let's see. Big Thon and Teresh have created a plan to kill the king. Would that be what you would do? Yeah, me too, I think. <laughs> you drafted me and cut me. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so they got this plan to kill the king. One of them's name is Big Thon. I don't think I want to take that guy, you know, in a dark alley. I'm going to let him win. I'm gonna, how about you, Derek? You want to take Big Thon? You take Big Thon, I'll take Teresh. He sounds, Teresh sounds kind of feminine. But Big Thon, I'm not going to wrestle with him. So he's got these two guys, Big Thon, Teresh. They want to kill the king. Mordecai overhears it. And so I'm just going to skip ahead and tell you what it says. He tells Queen Esther. Queen Esther tells King Xerxes. King Xerxes puts together an FBI unit, and they go to see if this is true. They find it to be true, and then they bring those two men to the public square, and they hang them in front of everyone. This is what happens if you try, if you even talk about killing the king. And it was recorded, verse, the last verse of chapter 2, verse 23, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So when it's all said and done, the scribes come to the king and says, just recap, I'm writing this down in our minutes, you know, here's what happened. A guy named Mordecai overheard this. He told it to Esther, which is your wife. She told it to you. You told it to the FBI. The FBI figured out it was true. Here's the evidence that says it's true. Um, then we could put them, you know, we skipped court altogether because we had pure evidence, hung them in the gallows, and um, if that's the way it went, sir, sign off on this. King says, exactly how it went. He signs off on it. The end of chapter 2, moving on. After these things, verse 1, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite <clears throat> and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. I'm confused. Verse 19 through 23 feels kind of like this parenthetical. You know what I mean? You know what a parenthetical is? Like a parenthesis. Bum, 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 bum. Esther gets married. It's beautiful. Oh, by the way, 
Mordecai overheard this conversation, got these two guys killed, and it was written down in the Chronicles. Bum, 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 bum. Haman is, a, is, a, is exalted. Yay, Mordecai, hometown hero. <laughs> How many of you, if you were Mordecai, you would be mad? Thank you for being honest. I'd be ticked. Wait a minute. Why is Haman getting promoted? I saved the king's life. The king, incidentally, who's sleeping with my daughter and now running around with a bunch of other virgins. He, Mordecai could have said, you know what, let's kill him. <laughs> I probably would have. Let me get in on this. I want 10%, you know. I just want to see this man's head on a platter. Mordecai probably feels like I should have gotten promoted. And I don't know about you, but I would feel that way. I'd be mad. I'm a competitive kind of a person anyway, and so I want to be promoted, not this Haman guy. Who's Haman anyway? Now, maybe Mordecai's not like that. Maybe Mordecai's a good old Jew, you know? He's got the fruit of the Spirit, humility, patience, kindness. Maybe he's going to be like, oh, the Lord's going to take care of me. Let's see how Mordecai responds. We'll see if he is like me or if he's like he's supposed to be. Now, I realize that we're studying a lot of... There's four characters in this story. Um, Xerxes, we met the first week. Esther, we met the second week. And today, we're meeting Mordecai and Haman. So I put these pictures of them, got these off of Facebook, to show you what they look like so you won't confuse who's who. Okay, So Mordecai is Esther's cousin, her adopted father, essentially. And Haman, the Bible's going to tell us who he is. We don't know who he is. Let's read who he is. Haman the Agagite. Now, before we move forward, I just want to say, does he sound like a good guy or a bad guy? Does, doesn't he? Haman. Haman. <laughs> Sounds like Satan, you know, the Agagite. Doesn't sound like Peter Parker, you know. Doesn't sound like Kurt, or what's his name, Kent? Clark, All right? <laughs> Kurt Kent. Sounds like... <laughs> Sorry, I haven't seen The Man of Steel yet. Hasn't, doesn't sound like... A good guy sounds like a lizard, you know. Haman, the bad guy. And this is the way the Bible is. It's so beautiful. It, it's pure for us. We get to see this guy's a bad guy, and he sounds like a bad guy. So God, I mean, not God. Well, the Persian God, Xerxes, um, exalts him. Verse 2, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, and that's including Mordecai, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king, listen to this, had commanded concerning him. But... Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage. So do you think Mordecai likes this promotion? No, he doesn't. Now, I need to say something about this because I think if you watch the Veggie Tales, you get confused about what's happening here. Because we tend to look at this and we tend to think Mordecai is a faithful Jew doing the right thing. He's not bowing down. Because I've learned in Sunday school, do not bow. I will not bow, right? We, we, we learned in Sunday school. But I need to tell you that I don't think that this is anything at all like what Nebuchadnezzar did to Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Xerxes is God. Xerxes is not going to command people to worship Haman because he's a bad guy. This is, the Bible says, homage. This is paying respect, paying homage. We do this today, and we don't criticize it as bowing down. We salute an officer, commanding officer. If you were to go to Europe and you had the privilege to meet the queen, you would do whatever they told you to do, right? You would curtsy or whatever it is that you do. If you would go to a, a foreign dignitary, you would bow down and do whatever it is that you're supposed to do. You're not worshiping that person. What we say in America is you don't have to respect the person, but you have to respect the uniform. Just respect. You're just showing homage. 
He's not being forced to pay tribute and to pay worship. He's just being commanded by Xerxes, look, I'm promoting Haman up here, and I want all the other officials to treat him with respect and to pay homage and bow. So this isn't, oh, Haman, you're God. This is, yes, sir. And we do it all the time. Mordecai's not going to do it. So you can imagine this picture. All the officials see Haman. They all say, good morning, Haman. And they walk by, and Mordecai's like, I ain't bowing down to you. I should be the one promoted here because I'm the one to save the king's life. That's what I believe is happening here. So the next verse. And all of Mordecai's friends, and they spoke to him, verse 4, day after day, every single day, come on, why don't you listen, they said. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand. What was Mordecai's word? Oh, here it is, comma. For he had told them that he was a Jew. This fascinates me. After 40-something years of hiding in Persia with a Persian name of Mordecai, he all of a sudden plays the Jew card. He's been hiding. In fact, he told his daughter, hide. Don't tell anyone that we are Jews. All of a sudden, he's going to pull out the Jew card now? And so his friends are like, what? You're a Jew? When did this happen? I was born that way. No, you didn't. Your name's Mordecai. That's not Jewish. That's Babylonian. Yeah, but I'm a Jew. See here, I got a card right here. It says Jew. <laughs> so they're confused now, and so they go to Haman to say, to see if his word would stand. Hey, Haman, Mordecai says he's a Jew. Does that mean he doesn't have to bow? And I wonder if some of these guys are thinking, because if that's the case, <laughs> I'm going to become a Jew. Because <laughs> if you think about it, if the king has to command people to respect Haman, Haman's probably is a Haman, you know? It's going to become one of my new words for people I don't like. You Haman. It's like when people call Missourians Hoosiers. Why do they say that? I'm born in Indiana. I am a Hoosier. I don't know what that means, though. <laughs> All right, so anyway. If it, where are we at? Uh, I'm being a Hoosier here. Hold on a second. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down to pay homage to him, verse 5, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman then sought to destroy all the Jews, that is the people of Mordecai, throughout all the world, the kingdom of Xerxes. He rules the world. So now he wants to kill not just Mordecai. He's like, that Mordecai won't bow down to me. I'm going to not just kill him. But you say he's a Jew, I'm going to kill every stinking Jew on this. Why is it that people always are trying to kill Jews? He wants to kill all the Jews. This is another reason why I think Mordecai is making a mistake. It would be best if he never told anyone he was a Jew. Sometimes I want to tell people, please don't tell people you're a Christian because you stink. And I don't want other people to think that Christians stink. Do you ever feel that way? Am I the only one? I'm the only one? Okay, good. Christians, I see Christians do this all the time. Sometimes we die on too many hills. You know what I'm talking Have you ever thought about this? We draw too many lines, and we say, I'm going to stand my ground. We do it all, and we confuse faithfulness with arrogance. I'm being faithful because I will not. I don't know. I can't think of one right now. Not, I'm not going to do those things because that's evil. And the rest of the world's looking at us like, you're stupid. We die on too many hills. And you know what? We are currently in this country dying on a lot of hills. And I'm going to be honest with you, we're going to die on those hills. Marijuana will be legalized all over this country. We're going to die on that hill. 
and in the end, there are going to be a bunch of Christians smoking marijuana. It's true. You know it's true. And then the rest of the world is going to be like, look at them, stupid people. First they were against it, now they're doing it. It happened with alcohol and the prohibition. I don't want to get into politics because I'm not a political person. Um, <laughs> obviously. But I'm just saying we die on too many hills and we draw too many arbitrary lines and the world doesn't know us for our love. They know us because of our picket lines. That's the truth. I once saw this documentary. It was called, listen to the title of this documentary, Lord, Please Save Us From Your People. Have you ever seen that documentary? No? It's on Netflix. You can get it if you get Netflix. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I have to be careful what I say because um, I don't remember everything in it. But I remember as I was watching it, I was extremely uncomfortable because I'm one of his people. <laughs> but I was also extremely, I was laughing a lot because it's so true that the world knows us for our stupidity and not for our love and our humility and our gentleness. Raise your hand if you think that would be true. Raise your hand if you think that might be why 83% of people refuse to go to church because they've been to church before and there was some stupid person saying, look, he's wearing a black shirt with a skull on it. He must be of the devil. And they, they treat him badly. This happens. I mean, I've been a youth pastor for 20 years. This happens all the time. I know kids who say, I sat next to my boyfriend and held his hand and they all gave me the stink eye. I have a tattoo and someone said, ooh, he has a tattoo. And they quoted Leviticus to him. You know, don't paint your body or whatever. <laughs> we die on far too many hills and the world doesn't know us for our love. They know us for our judgment. What does Haman know Mordecai and all the other Jews now for? Judgment. So here's the thing that we have to ask ourselves. How do we live in culture? How do we live in culture? And I see in my life experience, and I'm, and I'm not, you know, I'm not super smart. I'm just, just a Hoosier. But, but I, here, I see people generally choose three options, and I think they're all wrong. Generally, people choose these three options. As a Christian, how do we live in culture? First way is we separate from culture. You've seen this before, right? The Christians just separate from culture. We don't even have a TV. We don't even know what American Idol is, you know? We, we're just clueless. You've seen a bunch of weird separatists who don't shave their armpits or whatever. This is, this is kind of what Christianity has done in the past. The second way is to blend in. And this is what most Christians, I think, do. We just blend in and we look, we look exactly the same. Mordecai's been blending in. He changes his name. He changes his facade. You know, he's, he's got Persian, you know, business cards made. He's, he's a Persian dude. We're Americans. And the Bible tells us we're not supposed to blend in like this, that we're strangers, we're aliens, we're foreigners. Our, our home, we're citizens of heaven. And so, we, yes, we live here. We don't separate from here. But remember, our true citizenship is in heaven. So if you blend in completely, no one knows you're a Christian. And then, thirdly, people criticize this is what I see in America a lot today. We stand on our high horse and we tell everyone else they're going to hell in a handbasket. This country's going to hell in a handbasket because the leadership is, you know what I mean, and the Christians to stand here and we criticize everyone and everything. Do you agree? Yeah, we do. And all three of those are wrong. Mordecai has been blending in for 40 plus years. He's been blending. But now all of a sudden he's criticizing. I'm not gonna bow down, why? Because I'm a Jew. And we don't do those kinds of things. And how could that not make Haman mad? That would make me mad. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, that sounds like a car. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast pur. What is that? Oh, the Bible tells you. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it in month, month after month for twelve months, for a whole year, which is the month of Adar. 
Then Haman said to King Xerxes, okay, so let me unpack this a little bit. What is per? Per means lots. The Bible translates it for us. So per is the Persian name for casting lots. When you cast a lot, you cast per. Anyone ever heard of the Feast of Purim? Purim is the plural word for per. So you're going to cast lots of lots, <laughs> then that's Purim. <laughs> so we know what per is, right? It means casting lots. But if you're like me, you're like, well, what is casting lots? Well, in the Bible, we see this a lot. In ancient cultures, we see this a lot. Maybe you remember the story of Jonah. He's on a boat. All these pagan sailors are like, the gods are angry with us. Let's cast lots. And the lots fell to Jonah. So they threw Jonah off the, the boat and fed him to the fish. Then there's other stories like that in the Bible. They're constantly casting lots. I tend to think of it as like throwing dice, playing Jenga. I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing something to figure out what the gods are telling them to do. So this is Haman's religion, whatever it is. He's seeking divination, I would say. He's seeking the devil, the demons. His name's Satan. To find out what day should be the day in which we roll out our master plan and destroy all the Jews on one single day. For a whole year, they get together. You know, I imagine them in the dark with their crystal ball or something. Let's figure out from the devil what day would be the best day. Now, right now, you're seeing all these days in Nisan and Adar. And if you're like me, you read those and you sort of check out. You start thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch. Because you don't know Hebrew months. But later on, if you had a commentary with you and you could read this, you'll see this is extremely important. And I'll unpack that when we get to the end. But let's keep going, because I don't want to miss this. At that time, Haman finally goes to Xerxes, verse 8. There's a certain people. Now, I need you to see this. He never says Jews. He never tells them it's Jews. He says a certain people. And listen to the sentence. Scattered abroad and dispersed. Man, he nailed it there. Among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, comma. Listen to this. So it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. <laughs> this is so amazing to me. We live in a country where Christians are penned as being intolerant because we refuse to tolerate. This word tolerate is, just, is perfect. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they will be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge over the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do whatever it seems good to you. So Xerxes doesn't care. Haman goes to Xerxes and says, listen, there's these people out there who don't obey your laws. It doesn't profit us to tolerate them. Let's kill them. And if we kill them, we can take their stuff, and if we take their stuff, we can have all this money, and we'll be rich. And Xerxes doesn't even know who the people are. He says, here's my ring. Go do it. Fifteen million Jews are going to die because Mordecai refused to bow. Because Mordecai built a hill to die on. All right, let's keep going. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to Haman's command was written to the king's satraps and the governors over the providence of the officials of the people. To every province in its own script, that means they're writing it in their own language, it was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with his ring, and letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in the month of Adar, and plunder their stuff." And, verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. 
the couriers went out and hurried by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to have a drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So he asks Xerxes for permission to do this. Xerxes gives him the ring. He creates these letters. Did you know that Xerxes invented the U.S. postal system? He, he really, truly did. Xerxes ruled the world from Ethiopia all the way to Greece. That's the known world at that time. How many different languages are in that world? How, if he creates a decree, this is the new law, how does he get that decree to them? They don't have email. They don't have television so that he can do a State of the Union address. He has to get translators to translate it in every language, put it in a letter, and then curry it, send it by mail. In fact, anyone here work for the postal system? No? Okay. Well, maybe you might recognize this. In fact, this was Xerxes' motto for his couriers. Listen to it. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Do you recognize that? That's the motto of the U.S. postal system. We stole it from Xerxes. Or borrowed, I guess. I hope he doesn't get mad. <laughs> he invented the postal system. So he created these postcards. And the postcard said, on the 15th day of Adar, go into your neighbor's house, and if he's a Jew, slaughter the, all of them. And I want you to prepare for this, because on that day, every person under Xerxes' reign is supposed to go to their neighbor's house, if he's a Jew, and slaughter their whole family and take their stuff. You can have their stuff. We'll tax you on it, but you can have it. Can you imagine Joe Persian sitting at home watching American Idol, eating barbecue, and his wife says, honey, I got this letter in the mail. What's it say? It tells us that in a few months, we're all supposed to, on one day, all of us, go next door and kill our neighbors. Kill the children, even. The husbands, the wives, children, the pets. Every beating heart in that home, we're supposed to kill them and then take their televisions. All right, so here's what's interesting. Um, Mordecai, I mean, I mean, Haman, excuse me, and Xerxes sit down together after this letter was sent out, and they looked over the books, and they said, we're going to be rich, and they sat down to have a drink. This is what businessmen do, I think. That's what the television tells me, at least. They create these deals, and when the deal finally goes through, and they've sent it out, and it's done, they sit down, and they say, we're going to be rich. Let's have a drink. Give me a glass of scotch, you know, two fingers, let's do this. It's like Mad Men. Have you ever seen Mad Men? Maybe not. Any other gangster business movie I've ever seen, they get together, they create this plan, someone's going to suffer, they're going to line their pockets with that, and they're going to celebrate with a drink. Times haven't changed at all. But here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. This next verse is small, but huge. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Did you see that? Why? Why is the city thrown into confusion? I'll tell you why. Because they just got a postcard that said, I want you to go next door in a few months and kill your neighbors. And they're thinking, my next door neighbor, his name's David. He's a Jew. He's a good guy. He's our kid's pediatrician. And you know what? He loves our kids. I know this. And I could not imagine killing him and his wife and his kids. Sally Persia, she gets the postcard in the mail, and she says, oh, my neighbor, her name's Miriam. 
She is such a dear woman. We go walking on Thursdays together and play Scrabble. I love her. She loves me. She's been praying for my husband for the past three months, and it's been working. I couldn't kill her. And so the whole town is confused. Why would Xerxes ask us to kill those people? These are good people. These people love our community. These people are good for our community. Without these people, I don't know what we'll do. I'm confused. I would never kill my neighbors. And you know what I'm thinking when I read this? What would my neighbors say? <laughs> I shudder to think. You get a postcard in the mail, and it says something like this. On December 25th, everyone go next door, and if your neighbor's a Christian, kill him and take his iPad. You know what? I've heard that this is not such a far stretch. I don't know if you've listened to crazy politics political people like Glenn Beck or whatever, but, but I've heard these kinds of things. This is the great, you know, perfect day or whatever where they all just turn on the Christians and kill us and cut off our heads. What if there was a decree in this country that said, go next door, and if your neighbor's a Christian, we're tired of their intolerance, kill them. Would your neighbor kill you? Or would your neighbor say, I'm confused. That's such a good person. So here's, here's what happens. We answer this question, how do we live in culture? And obviously, if you got this letter in the mail and it said, kill your Jewish neighbor, they knew their neighbors were Jewish. So they weren't blending. They weren't hiding. And they're confused because they're not critical. And they're not separated from the world. They're in culture, loving their neighbors, blessing their community. And when an opportunity comes legally to destroy them, the city is confused. That's what it means to be missional. In fact, when God appointed Abraham to be the father of his people, he said, and through you, I will bless the nations. And when he said Israel on the mountain, and, and he said, you're my people, and this is the promised land, he said, you will be a light. You will be the leader of the nations that they will come to you to learn of peace. So God has always, as a missionary, wanted his people to be the leader, to be the influencers, to bless and to love the community. And when we do that, we don't have to hit him in the head with the Bible and say, do you know for sure that if you die today, St. Peter will let you in to the pearly gates? We don't have to do that. We just have to bless them and love them and be Jesus to them, be incarnational to them. And then eventually they'll have to recognize that there's no better person in my life than David or Miriam. And so maybe there's something to their religion. And let me also say this. It doesn't mean that you have to act like you know everything, which is another thing Christians tend to do. Act like you're perfect. Because they don't need that. That's called judgmentalism, and they hate it. It makes them feel small. You don't have to say, once you become a Christian, all of a sudden you're always right. <laughs> the best thing to do is say, yeah, I love Jesus and I love God, but I fail every day. Sometimes I don't listen to him, and sometimes I mess up, and sometimes, and I'm sorry, I messed up to you the other day. And that speaks volumes. You've done this with your kids, right? If you've ever just said you're sorry to your son, I'm sorry I yelled at you. I, I just lost my temper. They don't know what to do. What? Yeah, I know. I lost my temper to you. It's a bawling. Your neighbors will do the same thing. I'm sorry I messed up. I fear that I really might have hurt our friendship there, and I, I don't want that. Wow. They've never seen that before. Not from a Christian. <laughs> That's how you live in community. Think of three ways to bless your neighbors this month. The chances are you probably have three neighbors. And when I say neighbors, I mean literal neighbors the ones who live next door to you. 
or the ones who are in the office next to your office. You know, you have an office, you might have some coworkers who are in the cubicle next to you. Or if you're a hair artist, you have hair artists next to you and they always steal your scissors, you know? Think of your neighbor. If you're in school, your, your classmates, you've got tons of neighbors. So the question I want you to discuss, even right now amongst yourself, of three things you will do to bless your neighbor. In one, I'll give you one month to do it, and then in a month I'm gonna ask you if you did it, okay? And here's some ideas. My wife, she did this last week, because she's better than me, because she's not as creepy when she knocks on their door as I am. <laughs> but she makes sourdough bread, homemade sourdough bread. We have a secret recipe from England, from Indiana, actually, I'm kidding. And um, she takes this bread, and she takes it to the neighbors and say, you know, I've seen you, I don't know you. Like I said, see, that would be creepy if I said that. But she can do it, and she can get away with it. And she took it to three neighbors. And now we're going to do it again in a couple of weeks, and then we're going to invite them all to dinner at the same time so we can all get to know each other. That's our plan. But there's lots of things you can do. You can mow their lawn. Of course, in Owensville, that might mean like 20 acres, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> don't promise to do that. Uh, you can take them out to dinner. Hey, you know what? We haven't spent any time together. Let's go out for coffee. Let's go out to... I know a great restaurant in town, you know, maybe go to a restaurant. Think of three things. So I know I'm taking some time. What I'd like for you to do is turn in on your neighbors, your, your, your Christian neighbors. Like just maybe turn around and talk to people amongst yourself. I'm gonna give, that clock's going to go down from three minutes. I'll give you three minutes to decide three things to do in the next month, okay? Let's go. Well, for the sake of time, I want to move on, and we want to close with Christ. Jesus is the better uh, death because what's happening here is all these Jews are dying uh, 15 million of them are going to die on one day. And here's where it gets important. Let me, let me show you this. There's these two words, the month of Adar. It happens in the beginning in chapter 3, the first couple of verses, when, in verse 7, I think, when they start figuring out when is the perfect day that we can launch this program to kill and annihilate all the Jews in one day. And then at the end of the verse, when he tells Xerxes, this is what we've determined. We've got this master plan. We'll annihilate the Jews all in one day, and it's in this month of Adar. And what's so fascinating about that is, and you didn't pick up on this, I'm sure, is this is the day of Passover. It's the eve of Passover. So on the eve of Passover, they're going to rush into their neighbors and destroy all the Jews. All of God's people will be annihilated on the day of Passover. Well, what's the day of Passover? So significant. So significant. It's started several thousand or several hundred years before this time with um, Pharaoh in Egypt. It's really the same scenario, different time, different place. It wasn't Xerxes, but Pharaoh. It wasn't Persia, but Egypt. But the Jews were being suffered for because of their faith, and they were also being punished by God. So the, the Jews were exiled to Egypt because they disobeyed God and they weren't being missional. That's, that's the truth. And now in Persia, they're being exiled to Persia because they're not being missional. Because they're not, you see this in Isaiah, first three chapters. You refuse to be a city on a hill, so I'm going to send you away. When we are exiled, and you know what, we're exiled against God, whether you know this or not. If you're a Christian, thank God you're not. But if you're not a Christian in this room, you are. Because we refuse to obey God. We're sinners. And so we've been exiled, we've been separated from God. So on this day of Passover, God says, I'm going to destroy the firstborn in your home, I'm going to destroy you, I'm going to destroy your home. But if you kill a lamb, you sacrifice an animal for your sins, and place the blood of that animal on the doorpost, I will pass over your home. And so these Jewish people in faith did just that. They sacrificed an animal, stuck the blood on the, um, 
um, the doorpost and went inside and in faith waited and believed and trusted that God would pass over their home. Several thousand years later, Jesus shows up. And Jesus is gathered together with his disciples to celebrate Passover. I'm thinking it's probably the third time he celebrated Passover with his disciples because they say he was three years in ministry. So they celebrate Passover every year. But on that third year, Jesus said, I've eagerly desired to share this Passover with you. In Luke, he says this. So a few disciples had prepared this upper room. Jesus is there, and they're celebrating Passover. And at Passover, I don't know if you've ever, raise your hand if you've ever experienced a Passover. No? You should. I mean, it's, there's a lot of messianic Jews in St. Louis, and during the Passover season, they'll have these public Passovers where you can come and you eat matzo balls and you eat bitter herbs and you, do, and you go through the whole you know, routine, and, and this, this messianic Jew rabbi will tell you what it all means, and it's fascinating, fascinating. It's all Christological. And what they do is they have like three glasses of wine that they pass around during different times. Then they'll stand up and sing a psalm about God's goodness for saving them. Then they'll sit down and they'll eat some bitter herbs and they'll sing a song about how bitter it is to be away from God. And then they'll drink another glass of wine and they'll pass it around and they'll do this for several hours. So Jesus is with his disciples and he's got this glass of wine. And we don't know if it's the first cup or the second cup or the third cup. It doesn't say. But he's already probably passed a few cups. And normally he would stand up and say, this cup represents the blessedness of God who provides whatever. I don't know what they say. I'm not a Jew. But instead of saying what he normally should say, he says, this is my blood shed for you. And I don't know about you, but if I was a disciple, I'd be like, wait a minute. He just went off script. That's different and weird. And he holds up the bread. And again, there's lots of different kinds of unleavened bread that they've been passing around during this night. And at one point, he holds it up and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And again, the disciples are saying, this is off script. This is not what we've been accustomed to our whole lives every year when we celebrate Passover. And Jesus is essentially saying, I am the Passover lamb whose body is broken for you and whose blood is shed for you so that you are no longer separated from God, but now you are reconciled to him and you are saved. Your life is no longer in danger. So what's fascinating about this story is that in this story, we're going to see that God, well, Satan, again, he did it with Pharaoh. He's doing it with Haman. He did it with Hitler. It will happen again, assumingly. Satan is trying to destroy God's people. And God says, I have a Passover lamb who will die for you, and you have no fear. You can approach my throne with confidence. You are saved. You're free because of my love. And what did the Jews do? Nothing. Well, they put the blood on the, on the post. But aside from that, that's it. We just have to trust, is that good enough? Is that blood good enough? And I'd like to tell you this morning that his blood is good enough. And Jesus died for our sins and saved us. Amen?